Amen. As we move into this chapter, the Lord tells Samuel to obey the voice of Israel. Listen to their voice and obey. He says it at the beginning of the chapter and at the end. And this should perk our ears up a little bit if we've been paying attention to what's happened at the beginning of the book. You see, Hannah wanted a child, but she felt forgotten by the Lord. And Eli, as she was praying, thought maybe she was drunk because she was praying, praying so fervently. She was moving her lips but not speaking words. And when he found out what she was praying for, he spoke a word of comfort and encouragement to her. He said, may your prayer be so. And immediately, even before she finds out that she's going to have the child she's been praying for, she's at peace. And then she has the child and she weans him. And as soon as he's weaned, she gives him back to the Lord. She takes him back to Shiloh and gives him to Eli that he may be in service to the Lord. And then as Eli's sons wander astray, we learn that the word of the Lord is very rare in Samuel's time. But Samuel hears it. Late in the night as he lies on his pallet next to the Ark of the Covenant, Samuel hears the word of the Lord, Samuel, Samuel, constantly runs back and forth to Eli and says, Eli, you called me. And eventually Eli recognizes that it's the Lord. And as Samuel listens, the, the Lord is revealed to him. He hears the word of the Lord. And then after he hears it and shares it with Eli, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, we learn that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. None of Samuel's words, which were the word of the Lord, fell to the ground. Samuel could hear the voice of the Lord, and the people of Israel could hear Samuel's voice. And so through Samuel, the voice of the Lord came to all of Israel. We talked a couple of weeks ago about, in chapters 4 through 6, how the ark becomes this object that Israel thinks will save them. That if they just have the ark, they can use God's power towards their own ends. We find in this chapter that instead of the ark, they're now looking to a person that can fill for them the place of their relationship with God. But last week in chapter 7, we talked about how it's when Samuel's voice prevails, everything goes well for Israel. The Lord saves them as his own peculiar people. Just as the Lord delivered them from Egypt and into the promised land, the Lord, under Samuel's leadership, as Samuel told them to set aside all of their idols and false gods and return to the Lord in fasting and in prayer, the Lord hears their prayers. As they gather together as a whole nation for a sacrifice, as Samuel offers a lamb to the Lord, the Philistines plot and attack. And in the middle of their worship of God, they're attacked. But they experience the Lord's divine protection. The Lord's voice thunders out before them and scatters the Philistines. The Lord's voice scatters the Philistines and gives the Israelites victory. When they hear the Lord's voice through Samuel, they find themselves in a place of peace, in a place of stability, and in a place of prosperity. Samuel travels around from place to place resolving minor conflicts. He makes sure that in the midst of their sinfulness, they know how they can continue to live in peace with one another. But Samuel's a judge. He's not a king. He doesn't make any laws and he's not responsible for enforcing them. The primary actor in all of this is the Lord. God is Israel's king. 
God has given them the law through Moses. God's power is what protects them. And God's glory is what Israel is supposed to always be about. Through sacrifice and even through the stone that Samuel sets up and says, we're going to call this Ebenezer because we're only here by God's help. According to Samuel's voice, everything is directed to the Lord and the Lord's power and glory. But now, now the Lord's voice is no longer triumphing through Samuel. The voice of the Israelites emerging from them themselves is more important to them than the voice of the Lord. Now, the Lord says, Samuel must submit to the voice of the people You see, the Israelites are concerned. They're concerned because Samuel's sons haven't turned out that much better than Eli's sons. The priest and his family went astray, and that didn't go well for them. They lost the ark, and the glory of Israel left the land. So they don't trust Samuel's sons to lead. We see as they pervert justice and as they take bribes, as they use their position of power for gain, that their sin violates the trust of the people of Israel. They're not convinced that Samuel's sons can lead as Samuel did because they are not trustworthy. But the problem with Israel is that they don't recognize that Samuel's son's failings is a part of our human condition, that it goes to show that any human leadership can be corrupted, that anyone can fall, that there but for the grace of God, you and I go as well. Instead of recognizing the brokenness of all of us, they blame it on the leadership model. So they say, the judge thing is not working out for us. Give us a king. Give us a king that can make us like everybody else. They're so insistent that they know what is best, that they reject not only Samuel, the Lord's provided leader, through miraculous means to lead them, but they reject the Lord himself. And Samuel warns them about the costs that come with having a king. He says, the king is going to draft your sons into the military. They're going to be on the chariots, and they're going to be the guys unprotected running out in front of the chariots, and they're going to be on horses, and they're going to be called to fight the king's battles. And more than that, they're going to be the commanders of armies pulled away from you that they might be making decisions on behalf of the Lord. Your good leaders and your communities will now be operating for the king and not for you. He's going to put others under his authority as well to farm his fields, to make his tools, to manufacture the weapons that his army will need. All of them will be at his command. And you, as you do your work, all of it will be subject to the king's wishes too. He's going to take the best of your vineyards. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take 10% of everything that you make and he's going to give it to his military that's doing his will. In effect, all of you will be slaves through direct requirement to work for the king or through the taxes that he will put over you. He's going to take the best workers, your best people, your most beautiful, and he's going to put them to service for him. Everything is going to be towards what the king wants. But the people of Israel persist. They want a king and they want Samuel to give him one. So at the end of the chapter, as with the beginning, the Lord tells Samuel, to obey their voice. We have to recognize that this is a seismic shift in the power of Israel. Not from Samuel, a judge, to a different model of leadership, a king, but from the Lord who rules Israel and is supposed to be their king. From the Lord who's delivered Israel and provided for Israel and kept his promises to Israel over and over again to Israel's own desires. 
You see, as a peculiar people, the Lord has given Israel a unique relationship with him, the most powerful thing in the universe, the very creator of the universe. He's promised them fertile fields and fertile lives that their descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. He's given them divine protection. He has won their battles for them over and over again. He's made them a community of love and grace that they will care for the least among them, that the widows and the orphans in their midst will not be maltreated as they are everywhere else. They are called to be a peculiar kind of people, but they don't want that anymore. They've, though we might all say, yes, I want to be in a special relationship with God where God protects me and provides for me and for my people, I would love to have that. They are beginning to recognize the cost of that that the leadership is not always as efficient as they would like, that it comes with discernment and it comes with faith and lack of certainty about how things are going to go. Samuel isn't legislating for them. Samuel isn't giving them orders. And so things aren't as clear in terms of what it means to be faithful as they would like. And they feel a little bit weird. We don't have a king like everybody else. We just really like to fit in a little better with all of our neighboring countries. So the voice of the Lord gets overshadowed by the voice of Israel. The voice of the Lord through Samuel is quieted, and the voice of Israel that longs for a king, that longs for military might and governance, and everything else that comes with a king grows louder. And it, this whole chapter forces us to reckon with today, whose voice are you hearing Whose voice is most loud in your life? Which voices are primary for you? We learn the importance of this question through children's stories. Children's stories are often about which voices are going to shape your life and allow you to mature. One of my favorites growing up was the book, Are You My Mother? And there's this bird that finds itself away from its mother and it's wandering around from place to place asking the most ridiculous creatures and non-creatures, just items, if they're its mother. The bird is looking for somewhere that can provide it with guidance, with identity, with a knowledge of, of who it is and what it is that that bird is supposed to be doing. But over and over again, it asks in the wrong places until finally it finds its mother, or its mother finds it. Another of my favorite stories growing up was a story of a mom and her son. And every night as she rocked him, she said, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And this is the chorus throughout his life that shapes him and forms him. He knows that he is loved by his mom, that he's liked by his mom, that he is his mother's child. And eventually he's able to speak those things back to his mom as he tells her, I'll love you forever and I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mom, you'll be. This is the voice that lets him know who he is and what he's about and what's supposed to drive him through his life. I wonder whose voices you're hearing. What voices are loudest in your life that are shaping who you are and who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to live? A lot of times those voices are the people who are closest to us, a parent or a spouse or a child or a boss. Sometimes those voices are motivating. They motivate us because we want to show the people that we love or that we respect or that we're under that we are the person that they want us to be. 
And we enter into this never-ending cycle trying to please them, working to earn their blessing, working for an appreciation that will never satisfy us. And it will never satisfy us because of one of two reasons. Maybe we're striving and striving and working and working for a blessing that they're never going to offer. They're never going to notice enough how hard we work and how good we are, and it's never going to come. Or maybe it does come over and over again, and we're addicted to it because that affirmation is not sufficient for us. We want to hear over and over again, you're good enough, you're the best, you're my favorite, because we hope it will validate us, but it never works out. It's never enough. So sometimes that voice motivates us, but sometimes it depresses us or it oppresses us. It, it pushes us down. Sometimes these relationships that we're in, the people actually don't believe that we're good enough. And we start to believe it. We start to believe that we can't get anything right. That nothing that we do will ever be worthy of them or anyone else. That nothing that we do will ever be sufficient. And so we begin to be oppressed by these voices that tell us that we're not enough. The opposite of that is sometimes we hear an irrationally positive voice. That there are those in our lives that just constantly praise us and heap praise upon praise, making us think that we're so perfect we have no need to grow. That never let our problems be our own. That never let the world's problems be our responsibility. That that, that has nothing to do with our own brokenness and we start to believe that as well. Those are some of the ways that our relational voices shape who we are and who we think we're supposed to be. But there are other voices too, like the voice that lives deep inside of you that tells you what you want and what you desire, what your goals and hopes and dreams should be, and that you can get there by yourself if you just follow the right steps. The children's book that tells us this story is The Little Engine That Could, If you just say, I think I can, I think I can enough times, eventually you'll get there. And this voice of our own also sets before us particular hopes that will never satisfy us. Our imagination tells us that if we find the right spouse, if we find the right job, if we get the right car or the right house, we will finally be satisfied, we'll finally be happy, we'll finally be saved. And maybe it's not a close relation, and maybe it's not the voice that emerges from yourself that tells you what you want. Maybe the voices that are strongest in your life are those that force themselves on you at every turn, through every speaker and every screen that you encounter. Whether it's on social media with Snapchat and Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, whether it's the music that you listen to as you drive to and fro or the music that's playing in the background throughout your day that cultivates in you maybe less than holy desires, those that feed your own voice of what might save you, or those that are simply neutral, that aren't pressing you in any particular direction, but just leave you satisfied and apathetic right where you are. Or maybe those voices are building you up and drawing you closer to the Lord. This is true for music, it's true for social media, it's true for what we watch on television. All of the things that we find ourselves consuming consciously and unconsciously and subconsciously through the day. Maybe those voices are primarily the voices of the news that you watch on cable or that you listen to on the radio, whether it's NPR or AFA or whatever else. These voices, the news voices, begin to make us think that we might be saved by politics. This most clearly parallels where Israel is in the moment. 
that if we just have the right president, if we have the right Congress, if we have the right people on the Supreme Court or the most powerful military or the right leadership or the right constitution or the right model of government or the right political theory, that we'll be saved, that everything will be right, that it will straighten everything out, that we can have security and peace, prosperity and hope just because we get the right people in the right sorts of positions. Some of us use the voices to escape through sports and other things. I wonder what voices are shaping you the most right now. You know, if I get on a good week 25 minutes to talk to you, and you spend the rest of your week consuming other things, and this worship service and our worship service is the only time that you are taking to hear the voice of the Lord, it's going to get drowned out. And other voices are going to emerge in other ways. Psalm 33 talks about it in this way. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. From where he sits, enthroned, he looks out. He sees all the children of man on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue Ultimately, the voices that are speaking most loudly in your life, like the voice that was emerging from Israel, are the voices that are telling you who will save you. They thought that a king with his military, with his army and his horses and his chariots could save them, but he couldn't. These voices are what are telling you where you should place your hope. And they're telling you that for a particular reason. Maybe so that they can profit off of you. Maybe so that they can submit you to their power that you can work towards their ends. Or maybe, maybe that you can worship the Lord. Israel wants a king so that they can have a leader in military expeditions, so that they know exactly who to look to for governance, and ultimately so that they can be like every nation. They want to give up their status as a peculiar people with a unique relationship with God that calls them to live in a different sort of way so that they can be like everybody else, so that they can have a king who can make efficient decisions on their behalf, and they'll know exactly what person to look to for leadership. This is a betrayal of Samuel, and it's a betrayal of the Lord. But as we look at the whole narrative of Scripture, we begin to see how God redeems every unholy desire that we have. You see, Israel wants a king that will save them. And their expectations about what that will look like is skewed. They can't see, even though Samuel has told them, how difficult it will be to have a king. They want a king to save them. And so the Lord does send us a king to save us. In fact, the Lord becomes the king that will save us. Not the king that we want, but the king that can save. Jesus Christ becomes for us not the king that enslaves others for what he wants, but the one who becomes, who makes himself the servant of all that everyone else might be free from every kind of oppression. You see, he's not the kind of king that drafts others into his service so that they might die for what he wants. He's the kind of king that dies himself, 
that others might share in his throne, in his glory and power and honor. He dies that we might have life. He's not the king that takes the bread from their fields and the wine from their vineyards and uses it to make himself fat and happy and all of the people under him. He's the kind of king that takes water and turns it into wine that a wedding might not run out. He's the kind of king that takes five loaves of bread and two fish and uses it to feed a multitude that everyone might have their fill. He's not the kind of king that takes from others. He's the kind of king that offers to others. Jesus, Jesus is the king who redeems our desire to be saved by a person, by a government, by a king. He's the king that doesn't take the best from his people for his own use. He's the sort of king that doesn't pervert justice and accept bribes and get rich off of his power and authority, but the kind of king that offers himself. The king who offers his own self, his own best, that others might know salvation, that the world might be saved. You see, Israel wants a king and they get a series of kings who fail them, but ultimately the world gets a king who redeems our unholy desires, who is the word of the Lord that becomes flesh in order that we might have exactly what we want, a king to lead us while also having what we need, a God to save us. Jesus, the word of the Lord, becomes the voice of the Lord in our midst that might squelch all of the other voices. I wonder for you what voices are drowning out the word of the Lord, specifically as that word has been revealed to us in the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. I wonder what other voices are telling you to hope in, what other voices are telling you to strive for and to seek after, because that is where you expect to find salvation. That is where you expect to find wholeness and happiness, satisfaction and provision. The invitation this week is as it always is, that you might come to Jesus and live, that in Jesus you might find the source of everything you're seeking after, if only you would listen, if only you would look, if only you would abide in his grace and love, for he is offering it to you much more freely than you might ever expect of any other sort of leader. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you. We praise you for Christ, our King, who has come to save us and to redeem our every desire. We praise you that Christ is sufficient, that we might be saved, that his offering for us brings us into right relationship with you, that again, we might find ourselves as a peculiar people, people who abide in your law, in your law who survive in the midst of your love, who know your divine protection and provision for us. We pray, Lord, that you might quiet for us other voices that you might give us the discipline that we need to seek after your voice and to live as the peculiar people you've called us to be. We pray, Lord, that we might actively work against injustice and even as Jesus did offer ourselves that the world might be set right and might be set back in right relationship with you. Do this work in us and through us by the power of your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
As we respond to the word which we've heard today, uh, we're going to do so first in song by singing about the true nature of our hope. Uh, That this song might be a voice for us that tells us where to set our hope only in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's hymn number 368, My Hope is Built. 